This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download with my co-host Mike Davis. Hey buddy. Producer Matthew Dillner and social media guru. We evolved two weeks in a row. <laughs> guru. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we uh, we got some good stuff in the show today. Obviously, um, the king, Richard Petty, is our guest. It's going to be a lot of fun. We got something uh, very important to, to me. I hope you guys will enjoy a special Team Rubicon segment. That'll be cool. Uh, I want you to learn about Team Rubicon. Uh, some of the things that me and Jeff Burton and other guys in the booth are doing uh, for the Bahamas. And, uh, yeah, so let's get this show started, all right? Welcome to the game. Welcome, Welcome to the show. show. Let's go right into the open segment. What do you say, Mike? Let's do it. Open segment time. Let's open it up. All right, so open segment, man. Pretty uh, awesome race weekend. The Xfinity race was amazing. The cup race was amazing. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Kansas, just such a great racetrack. Uh Good and wide, run the bottom, top, where you want to run. Yep. Provides a great race, a uh, great place to race if all the cookie cutters were were so good. Um, Still feels cookie cuttery to me, but yeah, I'm glad it? you said that. Yeah, does, yeah. yeah. But, the, but the quality of race absolutely yeah. matters in that. And, it, and, it's, and it's not a hit and miss. It's always pretty much on time at Kansas. Plus, uh, you know, Kansas barbecue, and it's just a great, yeah, I mean – Love being able to go out in the Midwest because that's probably the best barbecue in my opinion. Yeah. Anyhow, Xfinity race, pretty wild. And shoot, man. I, <laughs> yeah, where do you start? I, right? I mean, to be honest with you, I know. you get the lap car that goes in there and takes out the leaders. You got I'll the fight quite, afterwards. I'll be quite honest. So it's I was in the booth for this Xfinity race. Typically, they stick me down on the pit box, and I come in and out and just give a little insight real quick after each stage. But this race, I was in the booth the entire time, and I had to bite my tongue quite a bit. Mm. Um, you know, I... The one thing that I want people to realize is that, but I, you know, when I'm in the booth, I take my job very seriously. I don't play favorites, and I don't pull for one driver over another. Only thing that I'm pulling for is excitement. The only thing I'm pulling for is storylines. The only thing I'm hoping that happens is that fans are wowed. Okay, and so if I'm excited about a driver, excited about something happening or a pass about to happen, it's because I'm excited that the fans getting something good, and. With that said, you know, when it comes to Xfinity race, I go maybe a little bit overboard to try to be, maybe even be overly critical toward the junior motorsports drivers. Mm. Um, just so fans don't get it confused, all right? Just so fans don't, you know, I'll, I'll call them out when they make a mistake, maybe even more often than someone else who, does, who, who doesn't drive for us. And in this particular race, it was quite frustrating, man. The, the, uh, you know, Noah had a really good car in the first stage, and this seemed to compound his day by a few mistakes here and there. Obviously, uh, at the on, you know coming on that last restart, he's leading coming off turn two after the mistake between Reddick and Cole Custer. Uh, but he got a flat tire, kind of getting through that mess. Um, so uh, you know, and and Noah Noah is tweeting after the race, man, I had to lead, you know. Gonna win that race and uh, had a flat, and I'm like, man, darn! I wonder if he really learned anything from, <laughs> from the day, all the mistakes that he was making. I'm not sure if he did, but um, and then Michael Annette, uh, they they pulled some great strategy 
uh, Travis Mack did some good job, yeah. uh, did a good job with the strategy to put him on 20 lap better tires than everybody at the end of the race. And I'm like, you got to seize that opportunity. Here's your chance to go up there and drive up there and take this race and win it. Right. And, um, whereas when we go to a track where they run the fence, I would worry about Justin Algar and Noah running the fence all day without hitting it multiple times. Of course. Um, yeah. And I go back to Darlington where uh, the seven, uh, Justin had such a great car and hey, he pounded the fence seven, eight times, it seemed like. But with Michael, he is conservative, right? Where those other guys maybe are too aggressive sometimes. He's never going to put your, he's never going to put himself in that situation or, or you don't have to worry about that with him as a driver. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great because we've, we're here we are. We're still in a championship battle with his approach to driving. But here's a moment uh, where maybe you don't need to be conservative anymore. Time to get after it. Yes. Your crew chief has done something extremely extraordinary. He got after it. <laughs> and he's put you in, 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 in position to, to go. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's see some damn moxie. And, uh, you know, he ended up running third, which was great. Uh, I was hoping that he would, he would maybe attack a little bit more, but uh, it's his style uh, to sort of, you know, uh, do what he did. And, and I'm hoping, though, when it comes down to it, if he's in position where it's a make-or-break moment that he knows how to respond um, we ha- we don't know that about Michael because he's really never been in this situation before, and I hope that he realizes as a veteran that he's he's got a unique opportunity in his career right now. So it was a bit frustrating for me, um, and I think, you know, not because I didn't think those guys all did well. It's just frustrating to be, you know, to be in the booth and, and you know, have to call it straight. This is usually why they put you on the pit box, yeah. by the way, so yeah. you don't get put into this kind of conflicting position. It was. It's okay. I'm. I don't mind. I'll be honest with you. I don't really care or mind being in that position, as long as uh, our partners and and our drivers know that I'm there to be the broadcaster. Mm-hmm. I'm not there to be your buddy and take care of you and coddle you right. across the finish line from the booth. Right. If you make a mistake or you don't do something the way it should be done or the way I think you could have done it, I would be even more critical. You know, just to prove the point that I'm up there to broadcast. And so maybe that's not the right way to go about it. I don't know, but I don't know. It's a tough day. Uh, ended up though, all the cars ended up reasonably well. So it was a good day for Junior Motorsports, and um, uh, we had a we had a I don't know if it's an upset win, or, but we had a new win. Um, I think it was an upset. Do you think it was upset? I feel like it was because there was clearly the you know the dominant cars of that. I mean, yeah. I, I look at it as an upset in the context of that race alone. I mean, um, and. I still don't know where I net out about that whole lap car situation taking out the leaders. Uh, that, that was another thing. So I've always been on the position that look, they're out there on the racetrack. It's their racetrack as much as anybody else. But that was pretty egregious. It was. Austin Sendrick is the guy that I I was touting at the start of the race. Is hey, you know, okay, we got the big three. Whether you like that or not, those three guys are very good, and they're going to make it to Homestead more than likely. Christopher Bell and Custer and Reddick. Who's going to be the fourth, right? Right. I was touting Cindric as mm-hmm. I was handicapping him as the fourth guy over Justin. Our, I mean, my your driver. own guy. You yeah. are hard on your own guys, aren't well, you? Well, I have to look <laughs> at the stats and go, wow. You know, if I'm if I had to bet a million bucks, where would I put my money? Uh, uh, fair. Yeah. All right. And Cindric has shown me 
uh, he out he outpointed Justin in the last round. He had a better average finish, and uh, I figured I thought that he had sort of uh, tidied himself up as a race car driver, you know, and was was through making you know mis- big mistakes and taking himself out of races. He had a bad uh, bad race. Didn't uh, he? Didn't have the race that I thought he was going to have for a lot of different reasons. And then I had Justin behind Cindric, and then Chase Briscoe. Mm sort of an outside chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think he was in the same boat with Justin and them, but dang. There he was. There he was. Yeah. He's sitting there leading that race, really going to win it, more than likely. But that, yeah, that lap car, I, you know, I, I kind of go, I'm. it was a mistake. It was bad. Sure. Awful. Cost the, caused the leaders to crash. Chase was more angry, or Chase's team, I guess, was more angry with Christopher Bell. But in that situation, you know, none of them guys can lift. And I don't think any of them, I don't think any of the leaders thought that the zero was going to bottle them up like that off the corner. Am I, am I wrong for not being mad about it though? I mean, I oh no no, I don't think <clears> you're <throat> wrong for not being mad about it. I'm not mad about it. I look, I'm, look, I'm com- too far removed from it to have any like I just direct thought, emotions about it. I, I I've always, I just felt like that there's something that that could have been avoided so there, so so easily yeah, avoided. Absolutely, it should have been. It should have never happened, but those things happen all the time. Yeah, you know, seems like a lot this year too. Yeah, um, you know, and and I don't know. I I I I teeter between I teeter between the obvious reality and 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 I, I teeter between dude. That was a freaking awful decision that that lap car made, and he caused a problem. Yes, I teeter from that to. Man, it made it was a it made the race more exciting. Mm, it did, right? So, yeah. like, <clears throat> yeah, got us a thinking, fight. Thinking sort a... of long term, big picture, growing the sport. I <laughs> see broadcast drama. Yeah, right, right, right. I have a hard time sort of knowing which way I should be. Right, I walk out of the booth at the end of the race, going, "Should I be mad and more critical of this driver, of this lap thing and lapper and and what happened there, uh, or should I?" I was a little bit. Not glad it happened, but I was a little bit like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, my interest is peaked. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm captivated. I mean, I'm, I'm entertained even. I, you know, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I hated it for Chase Briscoe. I've actually had a lot of conversations with him over the last year, uh, particularly mainly about plate racing. But the kid is a great kid. Um, and I read read somebody's comment. I think it was uh, uh, Swindell. Uh, said on social media that hey you know you, you might not think about it right now but that mistake costing Chase the opportunity to win could spiral uh, the wrong way for him personally and and for his career we don't know that don't but know. Yeah. you don't we can't make that assumption but I want Chase Briscoe to do well I want Ch- Chase Briscoe to win because I want Chase Briscoe to be around I like who he is as a person and a racer and um, you know and I hope he continues to uh, to shine so. I hear you. I've got I've got one question for you that I'm I've wanted to ask after watching the Cup race. We don't have to talk much about the Cup race, but I do want to talk about this. Obviously, on that restart, that last restart, you had a points battle just all over the place, <clears throat> yeah. and you had basically Chase Elliott sitting in third, and it looked like he had to win to advance. That's what I thought because he was uh, behind by three or four points. Kozlowski, who had I think taken uh, had taken some of that last wreck. Uh, is sitting there, and I, I don't know what position he was. I'm going to say he's like 13th or 14th, but he really novice logic, which is what I possess. Novice logic <laughs> is just hold your position 
and you advance. Who? Who Brad holds? Keselowski. Oh. Brad yes. Keselowski. Okay. You got three or four points. Now, it clearly, when they restarted, it looked like something was wrong with Brad Keselowski's car. But yeah. as we know now, nothing was wrong with it. It was literally, he, he just couldn't go. I, what did I watch from Brad Keselowski? I know that you aren't in the car with him, but like I just, it seems so baffling to me that a car that didn't get a tire go down or didn't get damaged by uh, you know, contact with another car lost that many positions with that much on the line. That's a result of the, the lack of down. That's a, that's a result of how dirty the air is where Brad was. Okay. Um, cycle, cycle tires, dirt, you know, kind of even a newer cycle tire, not as good as a sticker. That is also a result of lifting off the throttle in the low horsepower package. If you aren't, everyone around him is wide open, yeah. right? If he has to lift for any reason, which he did um, in turn one and two, that he could never get his momentum back up, right? It took him almost a lap to build his momentum back. And then, you know, he's in such dirty air. He got in the fence and it just compounded his issues. But at that point, he was already out of it. You know, it, his car was terrible. Yeah. He was slow. Before that caution came out, he's getting ran down, you know, by by cars that he typically isn't being outran by. You know, it just um, he just had a bad, bad car. Yeah. For whatever reason, did not have the speed uh, that he needed. Um, I thought one of the most compelling things from the race itself was that the freaking light came on before Denny crossed the finish line. Oh man! So it was they come they're wrecking off turn four, and I thought the race was over. I'm yeah. like, there's absolutely they got the white flag, and somebody comes over the our headsets and says NASCAR is looking at uh, the you know whether they got, got the white or not, and then somebody sent word through the headset not on national TV yet that NASCAR says that they didn't get the white, mm. and I immediately thought in my mind like how in the hell did they not get the white? Because <laughs> it was freaking yeah. impossible. <laughs> there's no way the human hand and eye and coordination and all that was quick enough and maybe they don't use them uh, and maybe there's not a human waiting to mash that button to turn that light on maybe it's automated in their you know they have some pretty good technology watching the guys on pit road as far as going through too many too many stalls too many guys over over the wall and da da da, da. but somebody's maybe, got to make a call to maybe put out the yellow maybe there's some automated uh, technology that You're, throws that light on. That's the only way I can explain it. That's the only way I can explain it. I cannot under, I cannot see how the human hand and eye was fast enough to beat Denny Hamlin to the finish line. <laughs> it's impossible. You agree that when you saw the replay, I mean, like he, it, it did come on a half of, like as Steve Latart said, a half a car length before he took that light. Maybe even shorter. I think it was about a foot. Uh, yeah, it was. It was stupid close. But um, uh, you, and it but, was, and it's a light underneath the. The flag stand, not really the lights on. So the lights, the, there's a light under the flag stand, all right? Yeah. That light came on, but the actual caution lights on the track weren't on till Denny had crossed the finish line. Really? Yeah. So those, so the real, this little orange light pops on, which I don't know what that light is. Yeah, you think all under, the lights are on the same. Yeah, under the flag stand. And then the light lights, the yellow lights that we know as caution lights around the track, they flashed after he he had about six inches of his splitter across the finish line. 
That's so crazy because how many times have we seen a race where they use those track lights as the thing to go off of on replays? The track lights around the track, like, oh, yeah. there's where usually it's like we know whether pit road was going to be closed or whatever it is. Yeah. But if they're not on the same, what, what's, the, what's the right light? And Denny still won the race, but shoot. I know. Uh, that was. I just don't know how in the hell the caution, I don't know how in the hell physically they did not cross the finish line. Before the caution come out, that crash was right off turn four. I mean, the whole that was for twentieth. I mean, the whole field was right mm. underneath us at the flag stand. And Did, anyways, I don't recall you actually questioning all this on the broadcast. So are you saying that you had to bite your lip the thing, in two different races? Well, <laughs> I bit my lip a little bit, but I didn't know anything more clever to say than yeah. whoever's mashing that button's very fast. You did say that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was trying to think of something clever that would dispute or or. At, bring into question, yeah. you know, the validity of it, but I didn't want to say something stupid or show my, show, you know, being about it. But I felt like what I said might stir some, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, some it's like you put it out there and you're like discuss amongst yourselves, right? <laughs> That's the thing that I've learned from Latart. So I've told him, I've said, there's been times in the races where something happens I disagree with, whether it's between something NASCAR does or the drivers do. I said, how do you not just blatantly call it? Like, I don't like this. I think this is wrong, right? Because you can't you, – the, how do you do that without hijacking the broadcast, right, and turning it into something it's not supposed to be? The broadcast is supposed to be impartial, and we're supposed to just talk about what's happening and deliver it to you as a fan to watch, and you, you're, you, it's subjective, right? And you, mm-hmm. you make your decision, right? And that's what he said, man, I don't I – don't, I don't choose, right? I don't choose one side or the other. I just bring it up and mm. push it out there and let them, let the public decide how they feel, what, what they like or don't like. So I'm learning uh, how, to, how to do that. I'm still not quite where I want to get. That was pretty good. Yeah. You just dropped it in there, let them discuss amongst themselves. Yeah, you know, and I get to walk out of there uh, and go home without worrying about people agreeing or disagreeing yeah. with me, Right. you know? Um, it, it, you know, if you push it out and make it a conversation, then that's great. That's one thing. But if you say I'm on this side, then you're like, all right, you've, you've now chosen your side and you've got to back up. You got yeah. to back that up. Right. But I'll be honest with you. I don't know how in the hell they got that light on that. Mass. Ain't no <laughs> damn way. Something's fishy. A day later, we're still yeah. wondering how that happened. It's, it was on. It was on. So well. One of those lights was on. Yeah. <laughs> ain't nobody seems to Might have been a traffic light it. outside, but one of them lights was on. Yeah. Put it out. Speaking of um, what the hell moments, how can you guys talk about the junior motorsports in a broadcast and not mention the freaking fight? The, the two junior motorsports I mean, drivers. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned yeah, all this stuff. Like that was the most awesome part of the weekend. Oh, yeah. It was. It was good. I, I mean, I didn't have a strong opinion about that one mm-hmm. way or another. I I like to watch a good fight, and you know, if it's former junior motorsports drivers, all the better, I guess. Um, you know, as long as they're not driving for us now. But um, you know, I thought it was a lousy. Uh, Example of a fight of a fight. I got you. Well, yeah. you had a little blood. I mean, that, well, that's, that, that's usually more than what you get. All right. So the blood. It, I know it didn't come from. Didn't the come actual, from a fight. It, it came from rolling around the ground. Yeah. No, I know, but that's where you get blood sometimes. So, at, at twelve fifty-five, they were going to show me and my, me and Steve and Rick in the booth uh, working. Before the race, they were going to come just kind of give a live shot of the booth and whatever we were doing, right? And, okay. and apparently we were all three on our phones, like two, like a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> so they couldn't use that? No, they did. They oh, they put did? It on, they put it on okay. TV during the, during the countdown to green. Oh, I got with you. With Chris Devota. 
so that but me and Steve had we didn't know we were coming on camera, but we had planned to be wrestling in the floor. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. What? They, so they were basically we were gonna mocking. Mock. They were mocking yeah. the fight. We were going to wrestle in the floor when they came to when the camera cut to the booth to say, "Hey, here's the booth, guys. They'll be on here in about five minutes for the race. You know, start to broadcast the race. We were going to actually be wrestling in the floor, and I was going to see if Rick Allen would just hold his knees and rock back and forth. Look, look, I I can appreciate the sense of humor on that, but let's be honest. That is typically. A NASCAR fight is a bunch of rolling around. I mean, yeah. I remember one of the most, you know, really like rambunctious things was that when Matt, Kislowski, to... or Matt, Matt Kenseth and Brad Kozlowski met in between the hollers, and all they did was hug each other when it really came down to it. So, all right, Cole Custer. He, he does this. We've seen a lot of Cole Custer this year. Guy's got a great personality, good kid. He does the, he does the interview after, and he's like, I don't know, you know, what happened, and da-da-da-da, and he put his hands on me, and da-da-da, right? Uh, or, or that was actually what Reddick said, but Cole Custer, ha- Cole Custer has this really conservative co- interview. Yeah. But then we cut to Cole Custer walking up to Reddick before, and he's using a, a you know, he's using the F-bomb, and you can drive like a effing, you know, moron, or whatever he's getting ready to call him before they actually started grabbing each other and <laughs> spiraling out of, you know, <laughs> sanity. Um <laughs> So I wish that Cole would just be that guy all the time. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> you know, if he walked up to Reddick to drop an F-bomb and give him a little bit of his uh, opinion about things, I wish he would do that in his interviews. <laughs> yep. He's too reserved. Like when he, when he gets in front of the camera, does the interviews, he sort of he, he gets calmed down. He calms down. Yeah. yeah. I wanted him to still be fired. He just got out from, he just got off the ground and gets interviewed like five, literally within the next five minutes. And he's like so put together and thoughtful about his words and yeah, you're wanting a dumpster fire. You're wanting the guy that went up and put his hands on Tyler Reddick and is dropping f bombs. Yeah. You're you are listen to your credit. You have said I'm here for the show. <laughs> <laughs> you That's want America? The, you want what America wants? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yep. All right. So, so we're for grading the fight. It's a C plus. It's 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 not uh, 1979 Daytona 500. We you all can have, agree on. You that. must have been a straight A student because I was a C student. Oh, so so did I, I would probably give it about a D. <laughs> all right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Picture this: it's blazing hot outside, and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. All right, let's bring in the king, Richard Petty. The NASCAR stock race. His name is Richard Petty. 
king of the road. Here he comes. Look at this. As they come down this time. Once in a great while in every sport, a superstar emerges. Richard Petty rose into the winner's circle as his father did five years ago. His name is Richard Petty. The crowd cheers as Richard Petty and his number 43 Plymouth takes the checkered flag going away. Gonna crash on the home stretch. A car upside down. The head's, his head's beat on. A blue car, it is Richard Petty. Bloody in his eyes hurt a little bit. He'll be all right, though. At the line, Walter Petty wins it. This will be a special day at Daytona as the President of the United States will be here a little bit later. Richard Petty has won the 200th race of his incomparable Grand National Duck Car Racing career. I understand that no one in the whole history of racing has ever done that, or ever won 200 races. The legend, the man... The King Richard Petty. The big deal is we're here talking to you when it's over with, and uh, I, I wouldn't change none of it. I wouldn't trade nothing for nothing else. Have a seat right here. This is your seat. Here's your seat. What are going to them for? All the die casts? No, these things here. All the headphones? I know. You don't have to. You don't have to wear them. No, you don't have to. I can hear y'all. You all right. can, that's all that matters. That works for me. Okay. Hello there. Hello. Hey, I hear you, King. <laughs> I right. got you. How was the trip? We made it. <laughs> <laughs> Always good when you get where you're going. That's right. Well, man, I'm telling you, I appreciate you being here. We've had an awesome season, but uh, this is going to top everything we've done so I far. About that. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's pretty awesome. So, um, I guess uh, uh, to start out, when did you first start wearing the hat? Uh, really, back in the late seventies. Why did where where does so the hat is the, <laughs> well, the signature and we use that to sort of promote that you were coming on to the show a silhouette of you and your hat and uh, I know you didn't always wear it when you first started racing no but, I really didn't uh, you got into one of the deals uh, probably more so used to than what it is now uh, if you're talking to the Goodyear guy you had an STP hat talking to the STP Guy, you talk, you know, you had something else. On. I said, man, this ain't working. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you was always behind. So you said, okay. And uh, one thing about the hat, if the sun's shining, you don't get hot. If it's raining, you don't get wet. So That's it works out pretty good. Wow. <laughs> Did anybody ever try to make you wear a branded cowboy hat? I imagine knowing sponsor with people. That it's, it? Yeah, with a logo. I imagine somebody tried to come <laughs> no, up with that idea somewhere. No, not, not really. Uh, you know, Charlie One Horse, I got with him. Back in the late 70s, uh, Kyle used to have a, what he called a boot barn. You know, he yeah. sold boots and hats and oh, stuff. okay. Store. So the guy come by one day and said, would your dad wear one of my hats? And I don't know, give me one, let me see. So uh, it just started from there. You've been wearing that guy's hat I've since? I've been wearing them, those hats since uh, 1979. Who, wow. who, how, like, where, was the decor on the hat always yeah, is every, extreme? Yeah, every one of them's different. They were they the, always that extreme from the start? They were always that extreme. Yeah, <laughs> That's that guy. A little wild, yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you like that? Well, yeah. At least they, with these dudes here, they got they can hear me coming. <laughs> <laughs> Rattlers on the <laughs> <laughs> I, hear I don't you. know if that's good or bad. Yeah. So this is a show where I get to ask people about the way they got their start and their beginnings. And when I was a when I was a little boy, there was this uh, 
it came out around 1979 or so. There was this sort of a comic, big, big, large sort of comic book. Uh, and I, I love that thing. I don't know how I got my hands on one, but I did back in the 80s. And I would read it a lot. And it was actually a story about Richard and Maurice and his, his family, Lee, uh, and how they kind of how he grew up as a race car driver in comic book form. And wow. it was very, very well done. Very well done. And uh, and then I ended up getting so my that, hands. that's where you got all the history of this, right? Well. In, in the comics. As a, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna tell you, the comics. As, as I grew up, I realized how uh, accurate it was, actually, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. I mean, for it's for kids, and it does a really good job of illustrating that, that petty history. And I ended up getting my hands on about four of them in really good shape about five years ago and had you sign them for me so I could keep them. But um, Oh, wow. So my point is, is that I, I kind of want to go back, and in that, in that, in that sort of comic strip, uh, it starts. You know, you're racing. Obviously, your dad raced, right. but uh, it has you and Maurice and all those guys building little, uh, building little carts and stuff, and rolling down hills and crashing and all that. <laughs> and, <clears throat> Definitely right. So, do you remember? Um, your childhood and and being around your dad's race cars and trying you know being around your your family all of you were in racing going to racetracks all the time but as a kid right helping your dad do you remember those times and uh yeah de- definitely uh you know the the first race that uh, nascar had as far as cup series yeah was 1949 and uh, i was like 11 years old and uh my dad my dad really didn't have have a car to go to the race. Talked to a couple of boys at a service station up there, and they borrowed a great big old Buick four-door. It ran good on the highway. It was a fast car. <laughs> so anyhow, he borrowed it, and uh, uh, they brought it home, and uh, my mother and daddy and my brother and myself got in the car, and we drove it to Charlotte. Okay? Yeah. He still had the hubcaps, the mufflers, all that. He pulls it in a service station, um, on a forklift, um, raise it up, take some muffler off, uh, takes the hubcaps off the thing. I think it tape a number on the side or something, and we go to the race. Mm. I mean, that, that's how stocked it was. And uh, it ran about half the race, uh, broke a sway bar or something, turned the thing over, oh, no. tore the doors all off of it. Uh, we was lucky my uncle was there, so we did have a way home. And uh, they went back the next day uh, with a flatbed truck to get the thing. So I don't know how he ever talked to them guys uh, that he bought it from. I don't know if he ever paid for it or what. Oh. And uh, then, uh, you know, at that time, I think they paid $1,500 to win a race. Yeah. So Dad comes and he said, you know, if they run enough races, well, I can make a living doing this. Mm. So he goes out and buys a, a 49 Plymouth Coupe. For nine hundred ninety dollars, that was the lightest, cheapest thing he could get, and uh, so we went racing and been in it ever since. Wow, so, man, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> that is crazy. Y'all would just pull into any gas station. Hey, man, take the muffler off this thing. Take the hubcaps <laughs> off. I'm going to race today. You know, my dad done that. Yeah, he, he was a mechanic. Was, yeah. So he was a mechanic before he was a race car. Driver, oh yeah, right? yeah. He worked on cars. Uh, had a few liquor cars from time to time. So, so oh. he had a little bit of experience working on them like, that kind of stuff and then he had a couple of trucks a liquor car is moonshine moonshine well yes. you don't <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah he it's, hauled a little bit from he time hauled time. some just a little bit yeah. yes but he worked on them mostly <laughs> and, souping them up well 
souped his own up. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, later on, uh, we used to run just stock cars. And uh, I know the first two or three cars he had, once we went to a V8, he sold to bootleggers uh-huh. because they were kind of hopped up a little bit and they were better than what they had. Wow. That's crazy. I can't even imagine. I mean, we hear the stories about moonshining and the sports starting from that and, and, and Junior Johnson and all those guys. Yeah, you got to figure, you know, 60, 70 years ago, life was different. Everybody was you know, running everybody did. Everybody done what it took to survive. Yeah. And yeah. my dad done whatever it took to make sure that, you know, we had a roof over our head and clothes and yeah. plenty to eat. And that's all there was at that time. Wasn't no TV. Wasn't no, you know, we didn't even have a radio. I mean. You know, I grew up on a dirt road uh, about a mile off of the highway. Uh, and uh, we had no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing. So, But the guys next door, they didn't have anything either. So we'd never been anywhere. So we was as well off as anybody. Yeah, you right. felt it. You didn't, if, what you didn't know, right. you know. What you didn't know was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when we got to racing, uh, all of a sudden, man, these people got Toilets inside the house. I mean, you know, places to take a bath. You know, electric lights. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just unreal, man. Wow. <laughs> I always was curious about this. Is that you, you mentioned that uh, it's all you knew. I always wondered if, if the people that were running moonshine and bootlegging knew the danger involved in it or if it was literally just the way of life that everybody kind of knew. And if you say they were just out for survival, did it, did the sense of danger even occur to you get you kids? No, it was sort of like racing. Yeah. None of us ever think about the danger of racing. We love to do what we're doing. So we go do it. And the bootlegger said, okay, whether they love to do it or not, they could make money at it. Right. So they never thought about any danger or anything. The only danger was getting caught, <laughs> you know, so they had to be careful about that. Yeah. What was the, I, I guess when we, you know, when I drive all my career, when I drove race cars and the in the cockpit of the cars has changed a ton, a lot. Like we didn't have really much of a headrest when I started yeah, racing. You obviously, you know, the, the interior of the cars were way more stripped down when you started well, racing. When I started, we had bench seats. Right. And you just had one lap belt, and, right? And had one lap belt mm. and had... <laughs> A little something on the side to keep you from sliding over in the seat. That that was a safety feature. y'all, and y'all probably had no fear of. You never thought about never anything. Never thought about it. Never, never thought about, you know, having a wreck or getting hurt or it's crazy. That, that was, you, you just never thought about it. How much has progressed now? And when you look at the cars now, and then you, th- and you look at what Richard drove, you. I think, in my mind, like I could never, I would, you know, I would never feel safe driving <laughs> something so fast. Was yeah, so the deal we didn't know any better, right? Okay, you know what I mean. And I think a lot of times now, uh, you got these drivers and stuff. They they know they're pretty safe, right? Compared to what they were ten years ago, Absolutely. twenty, thirty, forty, and uh, sometimes I think they probably take that into effect when they get to racing with people. Yeah, well, I can't get hurt, so let's go for it, right? That, that's where it looks anyway. Yeah. I'm not out there, so I can't tell you. Which is great for uh, for us watching. It. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a big show out it of it, does. that's for sure. So when did the petty cars go to what we call petty blue? They weren't always blue. They, your dad's cars were white. Yeah, really, uh, about 1958, 59, I think. What was the di- – why, why go from uh, white to blue? Yeah, somewhere along in there, yeah. Why? Well, <laughs> what happened, uh, we'd worked on an old race car – I think it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, 
getting ready to go to the race and it hadn't been painted. And uh, so we got to checking. We didn't have enough paint to paint the car. So we had some white paint and we had some blue paint. We just poured it all together. And said, <laughs> really? Okay, painted the car. You know, and after we run the thing, looked at it, said, man, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, we like that color. And so then I remembered how much white paint we had. We had 57 Chevrolet white, which is refrigerator white. And we had 55 Dodge blue, which was a true blue. Yeah. So there were true colors. And uh, so we just poured them together. Mixed and away them we together. Went. Wow. <laughs> that's how Petty Blue started. Just like that. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, there's a lot of things that's happened in our lifetime that's mistakes. This just happens. Yeah. You know, you don't, you're looking for one thing and you wind up with something else. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> that's the truth. Wow. Good. So your first NASCAR or Grand National race was in Toronto. Toronto, Canada. How, all right, so your dad's racing for, you know, roughly 1500 bucks to win. Uh, how are y'all traveling so far? Ooh, <laughs> yeah. How did y'all we, make it work? We, didn't, we just made it work. You didn't know any better. I know. That, but, that's the deal. You, your bar was not very high. It was high to us at the time, yeah. and everybody done it. I mean, the car, uh, we had a tow car, didn't even have a truck. Had a tow car, and you just hooked the car behind it with a tow chain. Wasn't even on a tow, trailer. No, it wasn't on a trailer. Right. What? And you went down the road, and that's what. <laughs> but the deal was we was as well off as anybody else when it comes to that because that's the way everybody was doing it. You know, and then all of a sudden somebody gets a trailer. Well, we got to have a trailer. Yeah. Somebody gets a truck. We got to have a truck. You know, and then now you know you got these million dollar tractor trailers, all the stuff inside them now. That, but why would you go all the way to Toronto? Right. racing that, here. That was the schedule. You had you know? to. Well, and my dad ran most all the races. Yeah, and that's how we made a living. So you had to go where the race were. Did y'all not look at Big Bill and go, why are we in Toronto? No, we didn't. We didn't no, ask y'all them. just went you wherever they nothing. said they to go. Just, they'd send out a deal two or three weeks before the race. Didn't even have a yearly schedule. Oh. I mean, it, it changed from week to week or month to month. Wow. And, okay. So, that, know, back, yeah. Back in 53, I think, we went to uh, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, wound up in Nebraska. I mean, you know, we We've been all over, man. Y'all were like a traveling circus, that's, just looking for a place exactly, to race. Exactly what it was. Yeah. Dang. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So what was that race like in Toronto? Do you remember? Well, Diddy and, and uh, I think Cotton Owens, I think it was, was racing. For, they were leading the championship. They were racing for the championship. And uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know if Cotton was leading the race. I, I can't remember that much. But him and Diddy was racing. And... Uh, they come up on me to lap me, and I don't know where Cotton gave me enough room. My dad didn't. Knocked me in the fence. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, so he, he, he wound up winning the race. Dad ran me the same way the first few times. <laughs> what yeah. is it about those dads? Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd run a, a couple of convertible races before that. Right. And uh, so it, I think this was the third race that I'd ever run ever. in my life. Ever. You know? Ever. And uh, – See, I didn't start till I was 21. Yeah. And uh, finally talked Diddy into letting me have a car. So uh, off we went, me and Dale. How long had you been asking him? Since I'd been about 18. I think, I think Buddy Baker had started a little bit earlier. And I said, well, if Buddy started, why can't I go? You know yeah. What I mean? Oh, okay. And uh, he said, not right now. I said, come back when you're 21. And, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot between 18 and 21. Yeah. Which I did. Yeah. Because basically once I – 
I looked at it and said, you know, I might want to try this. I started paying more attention to how the other drivers done, how, you know, how things were. Before, it was just my mechanical. You know, my dad say, do this to the car or whatever. And uh, then I got to watching how people approached the racing. Uh, and what the, There wasn't no strategy. You just run just as hard as you could, yeah. as long as you could. And uh, so I learned a lot by watching, you know, Tim Flock or, you know, Junior Johnson, watch Curtis Turner. You know, you watch these guys. All of them had a different approach. So I said, okay, this guy, I like this part. This one here, I like this part. I like what he does over here. And so then you just wind up being Richard Petty. <laughs> what was Lee Petty's approach? What was your dad's approach? It was strictly conservative. Was it? Yeah. Especially uh, for the first uh, seven, eight years. Mm. It was, he was doing it strictly to make a living, which he always did. But uh, once we got into 54 and 55, he had a lot faster cars. So then he got, he got pretty racy. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was a whole lot like – Dale Senior, oh. you got in the way, you better watch out. Yeah. Oh, really? You know? Really? Yeah, he took no prisoners. That's crazy. And I've seen a bunch of times when we'd run a race and he'd spin somebody out or knock them out of the way, and they'd come over when the race was over just, oh, when they left, they said, sorry we got in your way, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, why is that? What, what, what effect did he have on He's a big his, guy. His, his personality was just – you know, he'd be persuaded the people just by talking to them. Is that right? Yeah. That's well, right. Every once in a while, he'd pick somebody up and talk to them. But, you know, <laughs> other than that, he didn't have no trouble. He was a big guy. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's interesting. That's interesting. So he had that effect on people off the track as well. So, like, who was he, who was he primarily racing against uh, that, that was giving him a run for his money? You know, back then, you know, he raced against Tim Flock, all the Flock boys. Uh, Junior was starting. He was running a bunch of – bunch of races against him. Uh, you know, it was just, I, I don't know that anybody really dominated at that time. Yeah. Uh, if anybody dominated, Lee Petty was the one that dominated. You know what I mean? Man. Man, and then you started racing against him. Did Was that? Well, uh, I never raced against him. I got in some races with him. Yeah. Oh. But I was just starting out. I got you. And he was in in his career. You know what I mean? I got you. And, uh, what was racing a convertible like? <laughs> <laughs> Not really much different? No, no, you you didn't pay any attention where you had a top or not. You didn't think about <laughs> the difference in the in the deal. Uh, the the big difference uh, that we found out in convertibles was when we went to Daytona in '59, and uh, convertibles run 130 and hardtops run 140. <laughs> and we found out that there was a lot of difference. Uh-huh. But the quarter mile, half mile tracks we run, they really wasn't a whole Same lot of difference. Thing, yeah. And the way we had the cars fixed. Uh, we had the car, I had a hard top, and we cut the top off, and then we bolted it back on. And my dad would run the race one week with the top on it, and I'd take the top off and run the race the next week. Yeah. So we had a couple of cars, that's all we had. Huh. So um, <laughs> there's a story, I guess, uh, from when your dad was racing, um, and he came in the pits, had mud all over the windshield. <laughs> he, was working, he was in the pit working his car and went to clean the windshield, and he took off. Yeah, that was uh, like 1954, I think. We was in High Point. They had a little half-mile racetrack up there. And uh, they uh, it was real muddy to begin with, and then it gets dusty, like all the dirt, dirt, dirt tracks at that time. And uh, so they, they made a pit stop, and there was mud all in the way. So I jumped up on the windshield, 
you know, try to clean the mud off. Well, here comes the pace car. Psst, out we go. We make a lap <laughs> around the racetrack. Time we get back, he goes down pit road. I, by then, I got the windshield clean on his side. Anyway, I jump off, and he goes on from there. So you rode a lap on the hood? Yeah, yeah on the hood. What they say about that? It, well, does that constitute Johnny as Brun- taking Johnny equipment? Brunner, Johnny Bruner was the chief uh, NASCAR guy at that time. I didn't even have a pit pass, man. Oh no! I wasn't even supposed to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like 15, 16 years old. You know, anyhow, didn't nobody think anything about it. Ever. Really? Oh, come on! That, that back then, everybody done everything just to survive. Yeah. Whatever it took, you know, they didn't penalize you a lot of times because there was no rules. You know, you you just done what it took to to make a race. Yeah. How old were you when uh, your dad went out of Daytona with Bochamp? I had just started. I think I was 21, 22 years yeah. old. What was that experience yeah. like? That was really a bad deal. Uh, they ran a 100-mile race, and uh, I'd gotten in trouble. I'd went off the first turn. Uh, somebody, somebody had got a big wreck, and I ran over a bumper or something, and out you the, went the out the track? So when I you went track out in the first turn. I didn't know that. And then uh, when when I got out, I had glass in my eye because it busted the windshield. So I went then. I go down to the infirmary, and they're picking glass out of my eye. Well, just as I come out, then Dad and Bochamp go in the third corner, fourth corner. They go out the wall. You know what I mean? And so I'm sitting there about half blind. So, but anyhow, and uh, you know, time we got there, I mean, the car tore all the yeah. pieces. There was no safety deals then. Mm-mm. I mean, they went off where the tunnels at, and that's a long way, buddy. And uh, so uh, they take him to the hospital, and we can you can see where they've been because he was bleeding pretty bad. And we go to the hospital, and they say, you know, going back, and uh, we'll go in and see what's going on. So. Uh, me and my wife go back and clean up, and then we come back, and uh, you know he's laying there all doped up and all that stuff. He broke a bunch of ribs, uh, just shattered his left leg and knee, all that stuff. And uh, so we go, and they said, you know, come back. So we go back Monday, go back Monday morning, and go in, and he's about half groggy, and he says, go home, go to Greensboro, because we had two race cars. That's all we had. And we crashed total both of them out. He said, "Go home, go to Greensboro, buy another car, and me and Mom will be home about Friday." Four months later, on Friday, he come home. <laughs> wow. I mean, but I mean, that's that's how positive he yeah. was. So me and me and Chief went back and uh, went and bought a car. And like I say, they, they wasn't really they were pretty stock at that time. You had to put a scroll bar in and safety belts and a few safety deals, but uh, there wasn't that much change. So, first thing you know, and we didn't run all the races in 61 because we didn't have the money, didn't have the sponsorship, didn't have any sponsorship. So, uh, we just done the best we could. And then uh, by the end of the year, we kind of got things together because Daddy had always run all the show. He told us what to do, when to do it. All of a sudden, here's, you know, 21, 22-year-old kids running the whole show and no leadership. Yeah. Okay. It took us a little while to get our feet on the ground. But by uh, beginning of 62, then we, we started winning races, started putting it all back together. Mm. So how much more, how, how uh, much, if any, racing did he do after that crash? 
I think he ran a couple of three races. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the last race that that I remember him running, uh, he ran at Martinsville, mm -hmm. and I think he ran third or fourth in the race, and he got out of the race car and said, "It ain't no fun no more. I'm this is it." Oh. I mean, yeah. you know, he drove for a living, but he loved to drive a race car. And he said he drove up there, and he said, I don't, I'm don't, i not enjoying driving. So he quit and, did he and went, got his golf clubs and went, went golfing. Yeah, so did he Did he step into I – know, I know you, you know you said you guys were kind of running the show, but was there a point during, you know, the 60s and that he was a little bit overseeing what y'all were doing and where y'all – Well, basically, basically when he came back from uh, – from having an accident in 61, we were pretty much running the show. You know, yeah. as all dads do, they come in and tell you what to do. But really, uh, the the operation was up up to us really? from that standpoint. Wow. Oh, he'd come in and suggest things and change things, but uh, we we pretty much overcome that. Part. Really? Did y'all disagree? <laughs> no, not really. Never? You never argue with your dad. Right. You might go behind his back and change stuff, but you didn't argue. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that car. So that car sits in Mooresville in a museum over on 150. Yeah. That car that went out of the racetrack that Lee drove. And it was behind Petty Enterprise for a while. In the for woods, a long time. Right? We, we got them buried in the back of a bunch of All right. <laughs> so that is a – got to talk about that. So I had um, – God, who was it on the show? Childress. Was it Richard? They was talking about burying yeah. cars? Yeah. So I, I used to drive for a guy named Gary Hargett who worked in racing back in the 70s. Uh, you, you probably would know him if you saw him, but he I was working with him in the 90s. He had worked with Harry Gant, my dad in the 70s, running the sportsman stuff. And he talked about burying cars out on his farm. And I thought he was pulling my leg. <laughs> and then Richard Childers came on the show and said that they'd buried a few cars. And so – um, y'all, y'all put a car, y'all dig a hole and push it off in there. Well, behind the shop was a big old gully. Right. So we just throw them down in the gully. <laughs> Fill it up. Uh, there's a building on top of it now. See? <laughs> I mean, Dang. there's millions of dollars, millions of dollars worth of old racing parts. Underneath engines, Underneath uh, Cars buried under a big building over there now. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But at that time, it was worth nothing. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. you just needed to get it out of the shop. Shop wasn't that big to have any extra place. He had no storage. He didn't store nothing. You right. used everything he had. Mm. So that's yeah, the way they, it was. They, feel, they were great uh, for filling up gullies and holes. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Old crashed cars. Yeah, you ain't filling up the holes with your place. you still setting them on top of the ground. I know. Right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got the race car graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what for. I don't know. Sometimes I ask myself Trees why. will grow up in it. look good. It will. It'll it does. cool. <laughs> We, it doesn't take much to entertain ourselves, does it? We, whether it's <laughs> rolling really. cars into a goalie well, or putting them out there for the trees to yeah, take you, over. Your entertainment's racing. You yeah, know what I mean? Anything right. else is okay. Yeah. You know, listening to this conversation with the king is so good that it makes me want to hire people. Dale, that starts with our partner, Zip Recruiter. Well, Mike, ad reads are cool. They are. Yeah. They not only introduce people to partners that make this show possible, but the fact is we have fun with them. Especially when they are about Zip Recruiter. Yeah. And especially when they are about old Dylan Miskowitz. You remember him, Mike? It's one of them old Miskowitz boys. Uh, Zip Recruiter loves this guy. <laughs> Dylan has a spot to fill in his company, right? Cafe Altura. I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, Dylan. He needed a new director of coffee. 
a director of coffee. Dylan had trouble finding qualified candidates. That's until he made the switch over to ZipRecruiter. I mean, why look for candidates yourself? What a waste of time that is. Let ZipRecruiter do it for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get the qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And next thing you know, our buddy Dylan had his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. It's ours. That's right. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. D-A-L-E-J-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So um, back in the 60s, y'all ran at pretty much every type of racetrack, dirt tracks, asphalt tracks, um, little bull rings, a lot of short tracks, a lot of dirt tracks. But then you finally, um, they built Darlington. Daytona comes along. <laughs> they built, yeah, they built, Daytona was the first one. Right. When so Darlington you, was the first one. Right. See, Darlington used to be our biggest race. Right. That and, was like the Daytona 500 and, and, yeah. before Daytona. Right. So mm. when that track gets built, what is y'all's? What's the buzz in, in the shop? What's the buzz in the community in the industry? Y'all been running these little tracks, not worrying about safety, not worrying about anything, but just racing, and beating and banging, and having fun and working, you know, day to day to day. And now you're going to go run this big giant track. Uh, it, it was it was unreal. Uh, they had, I think, they started seventy five cars or something. Yeah. Anybody that had a car, put a number on a come, and uh, I think my dad, they had a week two weeks before the race to start to qualify. And I think he had to qualify two or three times just to make the race. Yeah. Had a six-cylinder Plymouth, you know what I mean? Even though a Plymouth wound up winning the race, not because of speed, but he didn't wear his tires out. Yeah, he had okay. an average oh. speed of about and 75 I mean, it mile was, an hour. It was wow. unreal. Yeah. They'd, they'd, uh, the, the guys didn't I – mean, I, I don't think they even thought about the tires. He didn't know. They was a bunch of cars when the race was over, a bunch of cars in the infield <clears throat> jacked up. Because people would go out in the infield Take and get a get a wheel and tire cars. off of a Cadillac or a Chevrolet or <laughs> wow. whatever it was. So the, again, it was <laughs> it was just survival. Yeah, but uh, what the size of the track? I mean, it it doesn't. No, that that was just completely different. And it the first time they ran the thing, the track was kind of flat, and then it had a, a one, one one groove, groove. up again. Now, when everybody ran on the flat, you know, nobody thought about running up. You know what I mean? Yeah. The next year, I think somebody slipped up there, you know, and then all of a sudden they start running faster. up. And uh, then a few years after that, the one and two corner at that time, they rebanked it completely. And then you, but you still had the one groove in, in three and four. And that's where the Darlington Stripe yeah. came from. You know, the, they they get talking about the Darlington Stripe now. They just run into the wall, man. Mm. Back then – the wall was the one that kept you inside the racetrack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was the craziest thing. I watch old videos of Darlington, and, and the one and two was 
well, I guess, yeah, it was one and two back then, was two lanes. And yeah. Turn three and four was one single mm-hmm. groove forever. Like you just didn't pass there, that right? You, you, right? You made no. you pass before or after you, you ran right. through there. Yeah, you just you get back and get you. You either get a run and start at them going in or one coming off. So uh, you just you float that thing in, and when it just just before it hit the fence, you'd open it wide open to try to keep it off the fence. That's crazy. So, when they first built Bristol, it was really flat too, and y'all would. It run was a lot flatter. So it was a really a nice racetrack. Really? When they built it, yeah. I was really. watching an old race there, and and y'all were like six wide in the corner. Because, guys, yeah, way you could, over you here, could guys. run everywhere. Really? And then uh, I think there was a little speedway up the road uh, that claimed to be faster than Bristol. The so they Sport? said, "We'll we'll fix that." So they, oh. that's when they come back and oh. back the racetrack. Is that oh. right? Wow. Yeah, because Bristol was pretty flat. Yeah, when it when they first built it, really, and then they came in and re. And but like you say, you could run all over the racetrack. It was weird. It was, it was a really nice racetrack. Really, what's one of the nicest racetracks you think you ran on? When you yeah. went there, you were like, "Man, this is great! This is great!" But I, I tell you, we we ran on some ragged ones. I know. I mean, really ragged. <laughs> and you know, most when I first started, the majority of racetracks was dirt, mm. and then they'd start asphalting. You know, places like Hickory or or wherever, and uh, the the deal then it got to be even the dirt tracks they got to fixing those uh in in learning how to work the dirt so much it was like a, a slick asphalt mm. i mean we we used to run hickory and run asphalt tires on a dirt track and run columbia the same way and we, and then they finally asphalted everything so again you you're looking at a bunch of history when you look back 70 years. Oh, yeah. You know, raggedy tracks seem to be uh, prevalent in your mind still. Give Reel off a couple of raggedy tracks that had quirks in it and just, you know, just. And we were in, uh, <laughs> me and Dale was talking about last night. I used to run the fairgrounds in, uh, I think, uh, Nashville. Man, that, that was a hole in the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it, it was just terrible. And oh. they'd rebank that thing two or three times. Uh, you know, you used to run. We run a lot of trucks. We run Hillsborough, North Carolina. Didn't have any fences. The only fence was down the front stretch to keep me out of the grandstand. Right, okay. right. I mean, and when we first went down there, there was a little creek behind the racetrack. And back in the day, the cars would run hot during the race. These guys would pull off down there, go down the creek, cool the car off, and pull back up on the racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> Just go get a little creek water. Yeah, go get a little creek water. Cool that thing down, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I think about those tracks. Like, uh, I used to, in South Georgia, I used to go to Oglethorpe Speedway, and it didn't have any walls, and it was like a half-mile thing. And I used to l- l- love watching those cars go, and they'd carry so much speed that they wouldn't be able to make the corner, and they'd go off, but then, then they'd, they'd, come, back they'd come back up yeah, on the right. backstretch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen some wrecks like that where uh, – we was in uh, New York, uh, Fonda, New York, and uh, they had the Mohawk River was right, the racetrack was right next to it. And this one guy, he runs off, coming off the second turn, goes down where the uh, trucks are, are running as far as picking up water, comes back up on the racetrack and crashes about three or four cars. Yeah. Tiny Lun and somebody like they had a big fight in the infield. <laughs> I mean, it was just survival. That's all it was. Yeah. There was a lot of fighting in the infield back then. I, <laughs> I can imagine. I wonder who has the crown of the best fighter. You know, nobody talks about the best fighter in NASCAR all-time <laughs> yeah. history. Who is that? I don't know. It, 
probably uh, Marty's pity. Super <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Did he? Did you I get him in the middle of any, a bunch of fights? Any, anything that went on, I didn't have to argue with him because. Dale would go argue with him, and Chief would go fight him. <laughs> so I could just stand back. <laughs> oh, I guess he liked to scrap. I hear you. One of the uh, one of the in- most interesting kind of turning points for your career, <clears throat> 1965 NASCAR uh, ban the Hemi engine. Yeah. You guys went drag racing. Right. So I've always wondered in my head how much of how much of that was Richard Petty's decision to go drag racing versus doing everything you've always done and known in stock cars. At that time, it was a pocketbook. Mm. Chrysler uh, was driving for Plymouth, and uh, Plymouth said, you know, if you're not going, we're not being able to run NASCAR, then we'll put you going drag racing. And they was paying the bills, so we said, whatever it takes, you know. Really? So we ran ran drag racing for about six months, and – then, in the middle of the season, there wasn't nothing but Fords running. So the fans got to complaining so much that they let us start running anything from a mile or or less. Then we was he able to run, run the Hemi. Mm. And uh, so I think I ran. So if there was, I think I ran fourteen races that year. Yeah, something like that. So there wasn't another engine oper- uh, another motor you could well, run. Well, not not the Chrysler was going to come out with. Right. In other words, Hemi they was had the Hemi, and Hemi was it. a Chrysler deal. And that's what they was going to stick by. Wow. So were you missing racing pretty terrible? <laughs> Drag racing was really neat for a little while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But when you got down to the end of the strip, I always wanted to turn left. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, I mean, you know, you six, seven seconds and the it's race over. was over. Yeah. You need a little more. Yeah. You're you, looking for a little yeah, more. You're looking for something else. <laughs> what would y'all do with that car? Well, we had a real – we'd never good, been in drag racing. Yeah. I mean, we Y'all had a purpose. stock car, so we we get a, a a car and modify the thing and make it. And we didn't even went to the drag strip. We don't know what. Right. So it's, at that time, it was a lot of match racing and run what you brung. It didn't make had a big engine, little engine, big car, little car, big tires. We didn't make any difference. So we went basically match racing yeah. is what we did, and we went all over the country. We went to uh, you know. They had a big uh, deal in Phoenix, Arizona. We went out there for a big show. Uh, Bristol had just opened up. We went to Bristol. Uh, they opened their drag strip. We we went some. You're talking about some ragged places. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So back, you get back into stock cars. Uh, you bet, get back into NASCAR and start immediately back to winning. You, in '67, uh, you ran 48 races and won 27 of them. I mean, there's. I don't think yeah. there's ever been that, that kind of dominance. That was with one race car. Really? Really what happened, that car started life as a 66 car and won Daytona with it. Okay? And then we had another car that we didn't, so we didn't run that car all the races. And I think I won eight or nine more races with that particular car. Come back in 67, we built a brand new car. All the greatest, latest stuff. Mm-hmm. And I ran that car four races. And I think I led every race, but fell out of four races that year mm. with that car. I told Dale, I said, put that thing in the corner. Personality ain't no good. <laughs> Roll it down so, the goalie. <laughs> so, so they changed the grill or taillights or something. 
I mean, 66 and made a 67 out of it. And uh, it was just, just everything fell together that time. Fate, the stars lined up, whatever. It didn't make any difference. You know, wherever you went, no matter how far behind you got or what, you're going to win the race. What so, was the main uh, – so you're racing that car race after race after race. What was the one thing that had to be done? What was the main maintenance that you had to look after on that you, car? We ran that thing on dirt. Yeah. We ran it asphalt. We ran mile tracks, road courses. I mean, what'd you do? To make tw- yeah, like you run a race. What do you got to do to get the car ready for the next one? You know, at, at that particular time, I think we was some of the first people that really tore the car apart, magnafluxed everything, redone it. Wow. You mean, I mean, so each time we went to the racetrack, we had basically a new car. Mm-hmm. It might have been the same car, but all the pieces on it, engine wise, everything was as first class as we could get. So our our dominance become was because of the maintenance and stuff that we done on the race car. Yeah. I think we was ahead of the head of the curve when it come to that. So um nineteen seventy Darlington crash. Come off turn four at Darlington. Yeah. Everybody remembers that. Um seeing that seen the videos of that crash time and time you again. Guys waving at everybody, right? <laughs> Man. Everybody <laughs> thought she was in big trouble there. I mean you got it were banged up pretty bad and Yeah, dislocated shoulder. That's it. How'd you pop that back in? Did you do that yourself? Well, <laughs> the, the deal was uh, dislocated the thing. And uh, so they go to the hospital and they finally get it put back in yeah. after, after all my hollering and hooping. And uh, so the guy says, you know, you need to keep it wrapped up and don't do nothing for four or five weeks and let it heal back up because if you start too early, then it's allowed to pop out any time. Okay. So I miss six, seven races or five or six, something, you mean, come back and run again. Then somewhere later on in my career, I mess around and dislocate the right one. I just stuck it back in and said, the heck with it. And the left one gives me more trouble than the right one. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's one of them deals where you drove hurt where you wanted to or not. Yeah, you raced with a broken neck. Kyle tells this story. Uh, he's told it a couple times to me. I'll, I don't know where you were, where you had your neck injury. But you went to Talladega. Yeah, we went. To, we uh, was running Pocono. Yes, and that's broke right. A, broke a wheel going yep. in the tunnel turn. Mm-hmm. Went upside down, and so uh, they take me over to this little hospital, and uh, the doctor comes in. He's holding the X-ray, looking at. It. He said, "When did you break your neck before?" Oh, in other words, it showed that the calcium and stuff around another bone it slipped over about an eighth of an inch or something. So. I broke my neck some other time, but I probably broke some ribs and stuff and was hurting so bad I didn't even feel the neck. Right. So mm. was, was lucky on that part. Yeah. But so then you, we went to Talladega uh, the week after that, and uh, I started to race. I had a big brace, you know, and so happened they started to race under caution. Yeah. Okay. So I was able to come in and get out of the car and we put Joe Milliken in the car, and uh, you know, I think he ran, he ran for a while, blew the engine anyway. But anyhow, that man. By the next week, I was Good back go. in the race car going again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's amazing. I saw there, what there was a video on social media this past week of a wreck in Charlotte. Right front tire blew out. Was it Charlotte? It was. Yeah. God Almighty, man! Yeah, that I, hit. That was uh, me and Freddie Lorenzen racing for the that's for right. the lead there. That yeah. looked. Nasty. 
It was nasty. Okay. It was because they didn't have didn't even have a cement wall. Had guardrail. Guardrail. And that guardrail, you went into a guardrail, and and it would give. And then when it called, it throw you back out. Mankind. Like a spring. And when when I got home that night, at that time our our uh, seat belts and stuff, but they were narrow. Instead, they got the real wide ones. Yeah. And it it drawed blood all the way. You know, you took your shirt off, you could see. You could see. And I bent the, I hit it the wall so hard, I bent the dash on the right hand side of the car. That's how much, that's how much the, everything give inside the car. Yeah. But you got to figure the the cars were so much bigger then, and they could take a lick better than these small cars. Yeah. So everything was, was kind of crashed slowly. You know. Yeah. Hmm. Was that was that what was the hardest crash? You think you've been through? You know. <laughs> something like uh, was running Asheville Weaverville, uh, come off the fourth turn, blew a tire, hit the cement wall, and the car just stopped. I mean, did it? It hit so hard it knocked the windshield out of the car. Yeah. Now that's anytime you see these wrecks and the cars are turning over, all this kind of stuff. Most of the time, nobody gets hurt bad. It's the sudden stop that what gets. Oh you yeah. Bad. So. <clears throat> and what track was that? Nashville. Nothing. Uh, Asheville, we Asheville. 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 Yeah. Asheville. I got you. There's a little town, but little, had a little bank, half mile track up there. That was a nice half little track. track. That was a nice track. A little, yeah. good little bank. They had a big, uh, <laughs> the, the track tore up one week when uh, I think my dad was running. We was up there and the track tore up bad and they stopped the race and some guys on the outside got a little disturbed about it. Wouldn't let the infield people out. They had a big fight. I mean, it was. It was something else. Yes, and that, we've that? talked about that on yeah. Odd History. Some big boy swung a pipe at everybody and got them all cleared out. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's Pop, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pop, Pop Ertle. Pop, worked, yes. Worked for Dead Moore. <laughs> yes. Well, what happened was that they they wouldn't let nobody out and all that stuff. So the, all the pit crew and all that, we got our stuff ready. We got ready to leave. This guy was up on the back of a pickup. He had a big board and stuff. He was knocking people, wouldn't let nobody out. Pop Parker, Pop Ertle. He must have weighed 400 pounds. Great, six, eight, six, six. Uh, he just went up there and grabbed the thing, <laughs> grabbed the board out of the guy's head, knocked him off the deal, uh, just pushed the pickup out of the way, and we went home. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Good old we, days when everything told, was easy. We've heard we've heard that story. <laughs> you know, we've done enough odd histories, by the way, that we ought to just run them all by uh, the yeah, king here, just should, to just because yeah. he probably knows about all of them. There, yep. there's well, so yeah. many crazy, wacky yeah. stories. You got to figure. I've been here for seventy years. Yeah, yeah. Been going yeah. to race for seventy years. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a amazing. lot of people. Um, Y'all just, wouldn't even thought of it that no, time. We weren't. <laughs> nope. A lot of people uh, remember your big battles with David Pearson throughout the seventies. Um, yeah, that was a big, big deal. Yeah, I mean, when you, he drove for the Woods Boys, so even when he drove for Holman Moody, but really when he got to driving for the Woods Boys. How how did you guys race? You had to, you knew when you went to the racetrack, ch- good chances coming down between you two. How did y'all keep a good relationship? How did y'all not get competitive or have different di- bad disagreements that that stained the relationship? Because uh, as yeah. far as I know, y'all had a pretty solid now, respect I think, for each other. I think both of our personalities was kind of low key. Yeah, you know, we didn't get too excited about whatever was going on, and uh, I guess the the only 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 time I remember that anything really ever happened was the '76 race at Daytona. Right. Other than that, I mean. 
you know, I told people, if David went down in the first corner and turned right, I'd follow him. So I figured he knew what he was doing. <laughs> Is that right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's how much confidence I had in him, and I think pretty much he had confidence in me. Yeah. And we raced each other. We'd done the deal. I don't even know if we ever been a fender with each other. Yeah. But we run probably more side-by-side laps than anybody in the world. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he wound up winning a couple more races than I did. I mean, we ran 60-some races first and second. Most people ain't even ever run that many races, yeah. you know, or finished that good in any races. For sure. So uh, that was – it was very competitive because the Woods boys didn't run all the races, mm-hmm. and they just come in for for the big races, and they always had basically the car to beat. And so the competition was between – and we always – was we might not have always had the car to beat, but it was one of the cars to beat because yeah. Junior – Nam had some really good cars, but more from time to time had some good cars. Yeah. So the the competition really come down to the, the twenty one and the forty three more more times than not. Yeah. Did you carry that sort of uh respect and appreciation or nostalgia for that for that rivalry all these years? Oh yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? And then then on top of that, first thing I know Kyle Petty was driving the 21 car. Oh, I, was, yeah. I said, man, what's going on here? <laughs> but, you know, no matter all the competition, all the years that, that we really competed against each other, they're probably not two families that get along any better than the Petties and the Woods yeah. It's just It just worked that way. That's I mean, right. they were low-key. We was low-key. We, we had a job to do. They had a job to do. And uh, we was after the same prize. But we didn't knock each other out of the way to get it. You mm. said things might have got a little testy after the '76 Daytona 500. What was the What was the? Well, the te- not not for me and David. Yeah, between think, the teams, maybe. I think, I think Chief and Dale got a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, bet, I bet they did. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I bet so. That's but, pretty. You know, I always look back at the race, and uh, you know, David said something about something. I don't know, and I said. I got hit from the back, buddy. I was in front when I, when we wrecked. Yeah. So, but it was just it was a real wrestling accident. I was doing everything to beat him. He was doing everything to beat me. Yeah. So, um, 1984, I was at that race in Daytona when you uh, won 200, um, and the whole sport seemed to know how big a deal that was. Did you know what was going on? Did you understand what you were had just accomplished? <laughs> Yes and no. You know what I mean? It was just another number yeah. at the time. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, it came down uh Kale and myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this. Kale had the fastest car, and he knew it. So he just going to follow me, follow me, follow me. And uh, with about seven, eight laps to go, <clears throat> I was leading the race. So I keep backing off a little bit. And instead of turning 8,000, I turned 7,900. Next lap, I turned 7,800, 77. You know, well, he's back there watching me and all that. So he's he's having to let off anyway to keep from running into him. So first thing, he don't realize that he's done slowed down 10 mile an hour. Oh. You know what I mean? Because we're still out running everybody. Yeah. And we come with a lap to go, two laps to go. Just as we get to the start finish line, you see a car up in the air in the first corner. Yep. corner. So they throw the caution, I think, either on us or right behind. And But anyhow, we knew whoever made it back was going to win the race. And so, 
quick as I've seen that, and he's seen it, we both got wide open. And it took him all the way down the backstretch to be able to pass me. And when he went in the corner, he went in the corner 10 mile hour faster than he'd been going. He moved up just enough for me. I popped right in there beside it. I'd done the same thing to David in 76. And I thought I'd cleared him. I didn't. I didn't clear Kale. I got mm. beside him and I got what they call side draft now. Yep. And we got together, got hung together. Both cars run the same speed. So we come off of four, down the front stretch, run exactly the same speed. The deal was I was on the inside. When we make the turn, when we make the turn, I beat him about this far. Not because my car was any quicker. It was just made a shorter road. Yeah. So we wound up winning the race. And Kale got so excited to come back around. It's still one lap to go. He comes down pit road. Oh. Okay? Yeah. He winds up running third in the race, not second. Harry Gant runs second. Oh, because he comes down pit That's road. a trivial for a I lot of people. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> so you end up winning the race and uh, – um, well, the president of the United States yeah, was there. That, Ronald that Reagan. was the big deal. So standing yeah. next, everybody loved Ronald Reagan. So you're standing there talking to talking to Ronald Reagan after winning your the big. I mean, it's the biggest moment in your career, I would say. Yeah. And you're standing next to president of the United president States. Of the United States. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, yeah. I was there. <laughs> we, were, me and Dad were sitting. So they had this big giant tent, and everybody's eating Kentucky Fried yeah. Chicken. <laughs> yeah, right. right? You, they're, you sending out about bo- they're sending out boxes of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and we're sitting about. You know, everybody's got picnic tables, and we're sitting about probably twenty feet from Richard, and y'all are sitting together. You yeah. and the president sitting side yeah. by side eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was the most American thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. I've never seen anything more American since. <laughs> it was great, man. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, the big deal was that uh, you know we talked to him up when we was upstairs, right? And then when we come back down there, I went and kind of cleaned up, put on a clean shirt and wiped my face anyway. And, uh, you know, to be damn, be able to sit down with the President of the United States at one of our vendors, not his, at the racetrack, not at the White House. Right. At the racetrack. And eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, what what more Fourth of July can you get with right. that? And the, the big deal there was that the race wound up being – he got us on the front page. We got him on the sports page. So it was a win-win situation for yeah. for, for all of them because he was running for president at the time right? for the second term. So uh, it was good good publicity for him too. Yeah. And the thing about it I thought that was most in- interesting is he was upstairs after the race in the press box with you, and then he 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 extended his stay. I'm sure it was already planned, but the fact that he stuck around. Yeah. And then ate Kentucky Fried Chicken with yeah. everybody. Yeah, he got there about about two thirds with through the race. Yeah, um, most of them cats leave, you yeah, know, after no, they, they get oh, done. Yeah, they, oh, they, oh, they, they come and wave at the crowd, and we're out of here. That's right. But no, I mean, you know, all the uh, the drivers and the crews and their families got to eat with the president of the United States. I mean, that's a big. You got to eat with the president of the United States. Yeah, you might have done it since then, but before that, you'd never no, done it. I don't it. think I have. You know what I mean? Pretty big deal. When you won the, the Daytona whole, 500, you talked to him on the phone. The whole garage was under that tent. Yeah. And we all, and I'm not saying this because you're sitting here, because this is the way it was. We all, even Dad, I could I could feel it, and in, in, in Dad knew it was important to be there. He was the first one to leave when the race was over with. Yeah. We weren't leaving yeah. today. And it was important for him 
to be there and everyone else under that tent. And we were there. We felt like we were there because Richard had brought the president to the race that he was going to win. Is that making sense? Yeah. No, it makes perfect but, sense. But right. even, even if Joe Blow had won the race, it was still one have, of the biggest things that ever happened. It wouldn't have been the same. No way it wouldn't have been it the wouldn't same. Have, no. It was just the icing on the cake it was. for me anyway. Yeah. Do you recall, what do you talk about with the, what do you talk to with the president when you're sitting there eating fried chicken? Do you even recall that conversation? Not really, no. Yeah. I would lock no. up. No. I, you know, even. Uh, when the first time he, uh, he ran for president. Uh, my wife and myself went to Baltimore, Maryland and met with him in a hotel room for about an hour, just us, because I was a big Republican in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. He thought I could help him, I guess. And we talked about school. We talked about wars. We we just talked. This was I mean, before that race? Okay, so you guys sort of knew yeah, each other. So, I, so he knew of me, and I knew him. Mm. You know what I mean? So I wasn't a stranger, complete stranger to him. Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, I don't even know where he talked about family. I don't, man, I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, I know. It didn't make, I might have not even talked. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the first, the first race that, uh, well, one of my favorite races, I don't know if it's the first race I remember watching, but one of my favorite races, 1979 and Daytona 500, you end up winning that race. Uh, and everybody remembers the big fight, but. Another thing that was interesting about that race is Dad is running his first Daytona 500. Right. All right, and he's in Austrian car, and it's a pretty decent old car. Um, he gets up there and leading the race. He did. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know what do you remember about? Obviously, so I guess we should probably go even further back than that and talk about Ralph Earnhardt driving for Petty. Yeah, he drove for us in '58, I think. Right. He drove three or four races for us. That's right. Yeah. So wow. there was already a, a y'all already connection. knew each other. And there right. was a connection there, but um, what do you remember about Dad as a driver? And he kind of came in a little bit rough, and and y'all, you, and Bobby, and and maybe even David Pearson. But I know Bobby had an influence. But all y'all had to talk to him a little bit there in those first couple of years about how to get you know how to get around here and get get to the end of the, get to the finish line without tearing the fenders off of it. Yeah, you know. I think uh, the first remembers that that really sticks. I don't even know the first time I heard tell of Dale Earnhardt yeah. or whatever <clears throat> was at Martinsville, and uh, I don't know. I started fifth or sixth or tenth or somewhere. Your dad was behind us. Anyhow, we go down the first corner. They throw the green flag. We go down the first corner. I'm turning here. Here comes a car across the grass, lands on my hood. <laughs> Who is it? Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> So I went over and said, don't let that happen again. I give him one of them finger deals. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that, that that's the first time I remember Dale Earnhardt. That was a nice <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. I remember I put, I've posted video of that wreck or that lap <laughs> on my um, on my social media on Twitter last year, I think. <laughs> um, that, yeah, Dad goes three wide into turn one, first lap. On the first, inside. On the inside. And clean, In the grass. And, yeah, and there's about <laughs> – ends up wrecking – Ten cars, you know. <laughs> At least. Yeah, bad, bad <laughs> deal. And, you know, knocks the king out. <laughs> he, I think people good. take notice. No. <laughs> so that's all he got? Because I would have figured you'd have grabbed him around and put him in the headlock. No, no, no. Maurice, did he have anything that. to yeah, say how about did, it? How did he get away from <laughs> Dale no, and Maurice? I don't know. Maybe maybe one other time I had to have a little talk with him. Yeah. I don't. I think I did. Later on, 
when he when he got where he was winning races and really knocking people around. Right. I think I, I think I told him somewhere that uh, I didn't mind him beating on my driver, but don't you beat on my race car. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, I don't care what you do to the driver. Was it when he spun uh, Hamilton out at Rockingham? At Rockingham. Yeah. yeah. What happened? So Dad caught Bobby Hamilton's driving for Richard. Oh, I got you. And uh, they had a Pontiac, fast Pontiac, and um, Dad got up on the back bumper and spun him around off turn four. No, he didn't. He just ran the side of it. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. Just took yeah, him he out. spun him off. Yeah. Spun him out. Yeah. Yeah. So you went up to him then. Yeah, I even think, after all those years, I, I think I had a little talk to him. Yeah, interesting. And I don't know, I didn't know if they'd already had a run in, right. or what. To me, the way I seen it, it didn't have to be done because it wasn't the last lap or anything. No, I mean, it was. But no. that was Dale. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. Did did you see any potential in him when he's sitting there running over people like back in the <laughs> '70s and when he's starting out? I mean, did anybody ever once think that this guy? I mean, you knew he was the son of a great one. You know, Ralph Earnhardt, yeah. he knew his way around a racetrack. Yeah, you know, his dad could get that done and not let people know about it. His, Ralph. Yeah. Ralph didn't mind moving people around, but he'd done it a little easier, okay? Mm-hmm. He just he just moved them over. He didn't knock them out. And Dale took it to the next extreme. Sounds you know, like it. <laughs> it showed. You go back and look at some of the, look at the things cars. at Bristol. Oh, yeah. Paul, uh Lamonti, I think he worked on him a couple of times up at uh, Bristol. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? He, he got by with it one time. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so in 1979, did you? I, are you going down the back straightaway into turn three? Did they already tell you on the radio that the no, leaders are wrecked out? Did you the, see them? The, the deal was, we was like, um, Ford and myself and Daryl yeah. was racing for third. Right. And – these two cars were like 20 seconds. We couldn't even see them. You mean? So we come off of four, I mean off of two, and just as we come off of two, the lights come on. There's a wreck somewhere. So, you know, you, 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 you look and you don't see nothing. First thing you do, you look in the mirror. It's the second thing you do. Or that's what I did. Right. I don't see nothing. So we cruise on down, and we know there's a caution, and i got to beat these guys for third. You're racing back to the line, yeah. right? Yeah. And – just as you, just as you get at the gate, just going in the fourth turn, or third turn, you look over. There's this number one, number two car. <laughs> Golly, man! You know what I mean? <laughs> None of us done anything different. We were still racing for third. Yeah. The only thing is, they just eliminated one and two. Yep. <laughs> so we come back and and I wound up beating Daryl, and uh, I think I think I don't know if Fort just seen the light and. Could, and let off or what? I mean, you know, me and Daryl didn't. We knew we had to race. Yeah. So, so we, I think we left Fort in the, in the dust there. So. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best things about those races back then is everybody riding on the car to Victory Lane. The whole team would climb on the well, car. Well, they tried to. Yeah. They, we had so many people on the car, a car wouldn't even move. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I think Ralph Salvino – it was the STP guy. He's the only one that stayed on the hood. Everybody else had to get off. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think after that, they told everybody not to ride in, ride yeah. on the cars anymore. Uh, we talked about a, the decision to to uh, go drag racing. Another tough decision, I think, in your career was to leave Petty Enterprise and go drive for Mike Kerr. That was that was 
really a bad bad time of our deal. We just started Kyle and just started running and we really didn't have the money for the to run everything. And uh so I said, you know, you gotta figure at that time my my career's going downhill pretty fast. And so okay, let me let me get out of here, you know, and try something a little bit different. Yeah. And so um we still went ahead and won two or three races with Curb, but still yet at that at that particular time, you started having people like Hendricks and Rouse and stuff come in with all these uh, background with all the engineers, all this kind of stuff. When we were sitting in Level Cross, North Carolina, you know, surrounded by trees, you know, so we were still from the old school. Yeah, and these guys were coming along and developing a way above us. They were they were a notch or two of, and we we didn't have the facilities or the smarts to to go ahead and get involved in that. Main deal we didn't have the money to be able to to go into that next stage. And uh, up till then we was probably even with anybody if not ahead of them. And then the whole complexity of racing changed when you started having these people that made a living somewhere else. Yeah. Right. At that particular time, Junior Johnson was making a living racing. Yeah. Bud Moore was making a living. Luke Woods Boys, Petty, we were all making it from the inside out. All of a sudden, you have these other guys come in. They're bringing stuff in. New money. Know? Well, what happened was that, say, somebody like Hendricks, and I'm not blaming them for what they did. They go to DuPont, and they said, Look, I got these fifty dealerships. I'll use nothing but your product if you'll give me fifteen or twenty thousand, twenty million bucks to run my car. Yeah. Them guys was, and and they done it from outside to bring it in. Right. We, Junior, and all of us, we we would go to sponsors and say, "This is what we're doing on the racetrack." Right. You know. So then we were able to get sponsorship up to a certain amount, but these other guys just just flooded us out, and. That was just that's just timing. That's that's just the way things work. Rick was on the show a couple so, weeks ago. So when when that happened, I said, best thing for me to do is try to try to make a little bit different deal. Yeah. Try to leave enough here for Kyle to run. And by that time, he decided to go drive for Glenn or something for the Woods Boys. But anyhow, so we shut down there for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. They had y'all had Dick uh, Maurice run Dick Brooks in a yeah. That's what I said. When we already had the cars, had the shop. Petty Enterprises was still there, but uh, wasn't wasn't but just a few people. Yeah. But I wasn't involved in that. I just sort of turned that over to Maurice and them, and they hadn't, they didn't have the expertise, engine wise, yes, but the rest of the stuff they didn't have. Did yeah. that cause any friction, you and no, you and your brother? Really. You leaving? No, it was just, it was again back to what's it going to take to make me survive, make my family. What's it going to take to make my brothers? Yeah. Family survived. Yeah, Rick was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said he almost hired you as a driver. Yeah, well, got we you. we thought we had a deal. Okay, right. uh, and uh, we didn't sit down and had, and that was just when he was starting getting getting his deal started up, and so that that was the incentive for me to go with the curb deal because that was the next best thing I seen. But that deal was was pretty much done deal until STP said no. You know, I mean, they they didn't 
and they were paying the bills at the time. So, you know, if you work for somebody, you got to got to sort of go along with. Dang. It. So, uh, it probably the best thing for both of us was I didn't go to work for him. He didn't have to worry about me. Yeah, you know, though I wonder anybody that's been almost like working for their own family business or working for themselves for all those years, and then all of a sudden going and working for somebody else. I imagine that the culture difference alone would be uh well, take some time did it gotta, ever have a you got to figure that when we went with the deal with curb with curb yeah we went with curb deal we took all our people all our equipment, oh. all our st- we just went to his shop put his name on the side of the car where was his shop Canapolis, downtown Canapolis. Yeah. is it where the building it's is now at the old dealer the there music. was old dealership there to begin with yeah you know I mean Wow, that's the shop. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I drive by it all the yeah. time. It's got cars in it. I think it's got, got a few one of his years. Yeah, think absolutely. Two, maybe two hundred car. I ain't been over there since since we left. I guess. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. It still yeah. looks. It's good. Doing yeah. good. Doing I know good. How that is. <laughs> but it was a dealership, and they can we converted it into a racing wow. racing shop. I think okay. Buddy Parrott was uh, kind of the head head guy at that particular time, and we hired him to be crew chief. So he come in and arranged up all the people. Yeah. Well, it's been a long uh, process from that point to where you are now, but <laughs> Richard Petty uh, Motorsports is still out there kicking. You got Bubba Wallace driving the car these days, and you guys seem to have a pretty good relationship. Um, but I think the one of the things is I want to ask you: you're at the racetrack every single weekend. Like you still go to the track. You yeah. don't. I don't know the last time you missed a race. Do you know the? I missed Talladega. I don't like Talladega. You didn't go. To, you don't like going well, to Talladega. That's, that's about the only one I miss on a, on a regular basis. What keeps you going? <laughs> I'm still going around in circles, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I guess it's, uh, you've been doing this 70 years. And I don't know if it's like getting up in the morning, you know, brushing your teeth, washing your face, combing your hair. I, I don't know. It's just, it's a way of life. Yeah. And I told him it's too late in life right now to, to uh, change and do something else. I enjoy most of it. Yeah. Some, some of it gets to be a drag. But to be able to go see how things have changed and wish that my car was doing better. Sure. You know what I mean? And, and I'm, I don't know enough about the way they set the cars up on the ground, you know, and shocks and no movement in the cars and stuff, uh, all the safety features. They got. It's just so much different now. Be like taking me and put me on the moon. Yeah. I mean that, that's how that's how far divorced I am from really the actual race car part of it. Right. And the the deal there is, you know, we we're not a big enough company to be able to to build and do our own thing. So we're working out out of the Childers operation, and sometimes we got good stuff. Sometimes he's got good stuff. Sometimes his stuff, you know, we we can run with his stuff. Yeah. But we run him with his crowd, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. And he he's not having a really a good year either. So the, I mean, if if he was winning races and we was running where we at, I'd feel really bad. But he's not winning races and we're running pretty close to to his two cars. Sure. And so from that standpoint, we think we're getting everything that we can get out of the car, and we got to just get. He's got to get better so we can get better. Sure. And hopefully we can help him a little bit. Uh, you know, and especially with next year, I think everything's staying basically the same stuff. So uh, I think Chevrolet might be getting a, 
different body style or some kind of. De- so we've got to wait and see what that comes up. And then in 22, then it's completely different. Yeah. Again, it's going to be a completely different. All this stuff is wiped off. We're <laughs> going to start again. Yeah. So um, how do you enjoy working with Bubba Wallace? You and him he's s- good. Yeah, y'all seem yeah. to get along well. I, th- I think uh, personality-wise and stuff, he's really good with people. Fits right in with the uh, Air Force because those are the kind of people he fits into their demographics. Those are the kind of people they're trying to recruit. And he's he's fun to be around. I mean, I think he's a 26-year-old kid with a 16-year-old mind. I mean, you know, I mean he's still a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And he's still – and uh, he can get serious now. Yeah. You know, I think <laughs> if we can give him a little bit better car, I think he can – I think he gets about as much out of the car as, as we put in it. I like so, to think so, too. Uh, you know, and his his attitude is really good. I mean, you know, he don't – so far he's not got down on himself. And he's he gets – I mean, we went to Indy and he had a different car. I mean, he was jacked up like Jack the Bear and still wound up third. Mm-hmm. So we know he can do the job if if we give him equipment to get it done. You got it. Man, I love to hear that. I do too. Um, one of our uh, our only producer, Matthew Dillner, he's a huge uh, huge fan of yours and really excited that you're here. Um, I don't know if you had anything on the on the agenda, Matthew, that you. I I do have one thing. Uh, Buddy Baker. One time, I was hanging out with Buddy Baker at Bowman Gray actually, and he told me a story about Lee, and that he and Rex White got into it one night there, and of course. Your dad, dad saw that Rex. I mean, Rex is a small guy. He was tough, but he was small, and he can't hear you. Oh, like a headphones. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'll ask him. Yeah. Okay. So um, he apparently uh, Matthew goes to Bowman Gray every <laughs> single of the, every other weekend. Big fan of Bowman Gray. Yeah. Um, and we are too. But apparently Lee and Rex White got into it there one day. Rex, being a little guy, came over to mouth off at Lee, and Lee <laughs> bent him over and gave him a spanking. <laughs> Do you remember that rumor or truth? Pretty close. Pretty close. <laughs> oh, pretty. Really, what happened? Uh, something happened during the race. Yeah. And we had this one boy that that lived down there right next to us, and he went to the races with us. Well, the deal was that uh, Bowman Gray up there at the corner, they had them bushes and stuff. So Daddy had had a hold of him uh, on a collar, had him this boy that was with us come across and hit him right in the eye. You know, Daddy didn't hit him. Oh. Knocked him out of my dad's hand. And so we just left. He was laying up in the bushes. So, but anyhow. Left him in the things, bushes. Things, yeah, they just left him. Oh, my God. <laughs> things like that do. But I didn't know that many people knew about it. Yeah. You know I mean? That's crazy. If it happened at Bowman Gray, Matthew has heard about it. That's for sure. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll ask you this last question. You know, the sports, ch- you've seen it. Seventy yeah. years up, right? So there's so many, so much change, and as as uh, you know, I'm a traditionalist in in a, in the sense that I, I, I change is hard for me. A lot of the things that we do uh, today, it took a while to, for me to get used to. But I'm gotten to where now I more embrace the change. Yeah. When something comes, it's not about what was better before; it's about embracing that new. Yeah, and um, you know, so I guess where are you with all that? I mean the did were you ever was it ever difficult for you to handle deal with the change in the sport, uh, hoping things kind of stayed well, the same? What was wrong with the, how we did it? The basic deal 
in my career. Yeah. The changes were easy. I don't know why I won't say easy. Slow. Okay. They came a little at a time, a little at a time, a little at a time. Then, uh, I guess in 81, NASCAR just changed their whole deal because all of a sudden they got a NASCAR chassis. Okay. We still used a, a stock body. Then over a period of time, they got all the bodies looking the same. That Those are the things that, that bother me. Yeah. Okay. That we got away from the original deal. But knowing that the generation change, the things are different in the world, things people growing up now are not as car enthusiastic as what we were when we were growing up. So you got to keep up with the modern times. Yeah. And I understand that. Okay. And I understand we've got to make changes. And I think we have to make changes. I'll put it that way. <laughs> because no matter what, when you get ready right down to it, you got four tires, a driver, and a steering wheel, and a motor, and you're doing the same thing, no matter how much the car costs or what it is. But the deal of keeping up with electronics, all that, people in the grandstand, they could care less whether it's electronics, whether it's got fuel injection or, you know, where you've got pedals as far as that. <laughs> you know, they want to see a race. Yeah. The, the, the only thing that I that kind of concerns me now is the way the races are run, the way they count the points, stuff like that, that to me, over a period of time, it's getting to be more showtime than it is racing. Yeah. They race a little bit, but the main deal is put on a show, put on a show. Back in the day, again, hate to use that word, but the race was the show. Okay. Now it's, you know, getting the cars all together, turn them all loose again, and then trying to keep up with who's going to go forward in the point standing. Yeah. You know, that, that confuses me. And, you know, when they give points for uh, different sections of the race, you know, to me, that's got nothing to do. If you play in a football game, you win the last second. You shoot the last basket, you win. You could be behind all day long or you could be ahead all day long, but it don't count nothing. It's when they throw the checker flags when it ought to count. Yeah. And to me, that's the way that it ought to be done. But it's working, okay? Yeah. And as long as it works and we still get things going, then i got to go along with the show. <laughs> I always <laughs> wondered, you know, because – I had to. I used to be so frustrated and voice, you know, just complain and 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 contest on social media or out to the public and media about my. I don't like this change and I don't like the way we're going doing this and this and this and. And then I got to thinking, man, you know, I'm not going to have good success if it, with a bad attitude about what's going yeah. on. I need to embrace it to to do well with it. And uh, now as I'm, I'm a broadcaster, I see the sport completely different. There are some things, though, you know, that I love uh, about the history of the sport that I, that, that either remains or I wish would come back. But um, Well, you know, it's, it's like everything else. Uh, the seed was planted 70 years ago. Yeah. Okay, the tree is growing. Okay, some of the branches we'd like to need – We'd like to chip off, you know, <laughs> but the main the main tree is still growing, and it's still there, and it has to grow. You know what I mean? Because when it quits growing, we're all gonna have to go to work for a living, and we don't want to do that. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> all right, 
man, I appreciate you coming out here today. Yes, sir, man. A lot of fun to have you here. A lot of fun to talk to you. The listeners love it. Get, get you up a bunch of more questions. I'll come back and talk to you again. That's a plan. Love okay. it. That's a plan. <laughs> we'll do it. Invincible, invincible. Oh, Mountain Dew is championing the power of doing. In this day and age, there's a lot of talk, but it's the doing that leaves a mark. Mountain Dew knows that no matter who you are, one person or a group of people, you can make an impact through your actions. That is why Mountain Dew and I teamed up with Team Rubicon, the champion selfless men and women who truly embody what it means to do the do. Okay, today... We're going to talk to Jake Wood, Mike. Can't wait. He is the CEO of Team Rubicon, also a good friend of mine. All right, so let's try to get Jake on the phone. Hello? Hey, Jake. It's Dale Jr. Hey, Dale. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Hey, thanks for doing this. Uh, the reason of course. I'm, yeah, the reason I'm calling you, Mountain Dew is helping me do this three-week series on Team Rubicon, which you started. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of what – yeah, I'm a big fan of what you guys do. You know that. Um, Appreciate it. You and I sort of met via Twitter earlier this yeah. year. Yeah. And I want my listeners uh, of the podcast to know what Team Rubicon is all about. So, first of all, how and when did Team Rubicon start? Yeah, we got our start uh, almost by accident back in January 2010 after the Haiti earthquake. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd only been out of the Marine Corps for about 60 days. Um, you know, kind of the story goes, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. And then, uh, you know, when the Haiti earthquake happened, just witnessing all the, the devastation and, you know, and, and suffering down there, I felt compelled to, to help in some capacity. And so uh, I've worked with a couple of guys that I served with in the Marine Corps, a couple of guys that I went to college with. And, uh, and we went down there about four, five days after the earthquake. And, we uh, we were taking doctors into the hardest hit areas of, of Port-au-Prince and, and helping these people get back on their feet. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of in those early days, those early moments that we realized that, uh, you know, everything we'd been taught in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, about leadership and, and uh, you know, small unit tactics and uh, logistics and mission planning was applicable in disaster zones like that. So we came back and we decided to incorporate as a nonprofit and, you know, and since then we've been trying to build the best disaster response organization in the world. Well, how many folks are involved now with Team Rubicon? Yeah, we've got over a hundred thousand amazing men and women across the country who, you know, have raised their hand and said, Hey, I want to continue to serve my country and and Team Rubicon's the the way that they do it. How do you organize or coordinate that many folks for disaster relief? <laughs> Sometimes I ask myself that question. Um, yeah, what's what's amazing is, uh, you know, people that come from the military, they know how to lead and they know how to follow. They know how to work in systems, but they also they know how to uh, they know how to innovate. They know how to um, take control of situations. And so, you know, we've built a really robust system and adopted kind of industry best practices to to ensure that we can get these volunteers consistently and safely to these disaster zones so that they can have impact. But I mean, the real secret sauce is in the people. Again, these are, these are folks that they've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. They've been to Vietnam, the Gulf war, all of these places over the last 50 years. And, 
what they've brought back from those, you know, often terrible experiences are these wealth of um, skills. And then we're just putting them to use. What are the different ways that, you know, what, so Team Robicon goes into an area to offer humanitarian aid. What are some of the things that you guys uh, specialize in? Uh, well, we, we refer to the stuff that we do as, as kind of our capabilities, what we're able to do. And, you know, it kind of ranges from moving in and doing the damage assessment, helping to use uh, technology and, and, and skills from people that maybe had an intelligence background to create a full picture of what's happened. And then, you know, when you're getting down to the work, it's, you know, some of it is is more uh, skilled, like you know, how do you run a chainsaw and effectively cut trees that have been twisted and torn up by a tornado or a hurricane? Or how do you run pieces of heavy, uh, heavy equipment, heavy machinery to clear roads and to clear debris to just, you know, having people that have strong backs that can go in and muck and gut these homes that maybe were flooded by storm surge or rising rivers. Um, and then, of course, we do international work as well, where you know we'll deploy some of our most highly skilled, high, highly experienced folks uh, with medical teams to, to make sure that we can get medical assistance to these often super remote populations in countries around the world. Uh, last week, um, one of my colleagues at NBC Sports, Jeff Burton, came on our podcast and talked about his experience working with Team Rubicon in the Bahamas. And for Team Rubicon, yeah. though, that was just one of 90 disaster relief operations this year and every just about once a week i'll get a tweet in my timeline where team rubicon says we're monitoring the situation and you can insert the 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 town or country uh how do you guys um decide what makes you decide hey we're going there this is something we're getting involved in well i mean you really have to think about it and from two perspectives. One, you know, if we look at our domestic operations, that's where the vast majority of the volume of our work is. So of 90 operations that so far this year, I'd venture to say off the top of my head that 85 of them have been in the U.S. And so our goal is to really say yes to any community in need, um, whether that's a flood that impacted 15 homes or it's a hurricane that impacted 15,000 homes. We try to say yes we try to make disasters local. We try to tap into the veterans in every community to make sure that we can do that. Internationally, it's it's obviously trickier. Um, you have to be able to coordinate with the government of the nation that's impacted. Sometimes that's not always easy. You also have to really determine, you know, is that country's resources, are they overwhelmed? Are we actually going to add value that, that generates uh, you know, a reasonable return on the donor money that we're going to spend to do it. And so, you know, we say no more frequently when we look at international opportunities, but it's not because we don't care or, you know, the people don't matter to us. It's just a matter of, you know, can we effectively execute to have impact? I went to work and learn a, lo- a lot about Team Rubicon in, in uh, Florida most recently with a hurricane mm-hmm. there this year. And one of the things that I took away, I mean, of the many things that I learned, one of the one things that I was most impressed with and heard a lot about was how you guys are there long after the news coverage is gone, months and months after the disaster actually happens. And um, Jake, do you think about what the long game is for Team Rubicon? <laughs> we talk about the long game all the time, Dale. I mean, you know, we, we're about to hit our 10-year anniversary, and – you know, it would be easy for us to kind of pause and look back and pat ourselves on the back. Um, but we're, we really just we, we think about it as we're, we're just kind of approaching the starting line. And we always aspire to 
do the right things, make the right choices that enable us to build an organization that will last 100 years. And when we think about what that looks like, even 10 years from now or 90 years from now, it's you know communities that are made more resilient because those communities turn to their military veterans to lead them through times of crisis. And so when we think about what we're building, it's it's really a reimagined 21st century volunteer fire department. You know, we're we're making communities stronger by organizing their best assets, their people, you know, their veterans to to serve on that front line. Um, so yeah, we talk about it a lot. We do. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you giving me a little bit of time today and talking to us. I know you guys are extremely busy with everything going on, so we're going to check back, though, in a few weeks. All right, buddy? All right. I look forward to it, Dale. All right. Thanks, Jake. To learn more about Team Rubicon's work, go to teamrubiconusa.org. All right, we have a quick odd history for you. In the late 50s, Johnson City, Tennessee driver Herman Bean earned the nickname the Turtle. Because <laughs> what the hell's so funny? Mike? That's a hell of a race name. Well, let me tell you why he got that nickname. It's because he raced slow <laughs> and conservatively to protect his equipment so he could be running at the finish of each race. Back then, I mean, the cars weren't quite as durable, Mike. I guess so. So maybe the turtle pr- approach was the way to go. All right. <laughs> well, at Daytona in 1960, the turtle forgot his shell. In a Daytona 500 qualifying race, Beam was about to start the race, and he had a problem. He didn't have his helmet. So he took the green flag without a helmet on in 1960. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. It didn't take long for NASCAR to notice Beam's uncovered head and black flagged him after he ran eight laps. Shoot, that's quite a few. Some sources even say that it was the first time NASCAR ever used the black flag on anyone. Instead of returning to the track with a helmet, Beam chose to park the car for the day. God, don't mess up my hair. Well, I just don't know if he had a helmet. What if he didn't find one? I'm sure that's it. I'm sure it. you didn't he just worry about his hair. He's going 180 <laughs> no, miles an hour. That hair is flapping his around hair is the breeze. already ruined at this point, Mike. <laughs> I ain't going back out there. He couldn't find his helmet, Mike. We're assuming... I am. Yeah, right. I mean, the guy's not going to do it by choice. Well, you never know about the old turtle. He's crazy. Well, I mean, he still <laughs> made the race. He still made the race. So it's not which, like... Which would suggest he had a helmet, right? Which, which, which would suggest he didn't need to finish the race. Okay, I see so where you're going So he pulls in, parks. I don't know where my freaking helmet this, is. This is a starting part. I know probably this is confusing the <laughs> shit out of Mike Davis. No, no, I got it But now. I can't find my helmet, so I'm going to park the car. I'm in the race. I, quali- I must have a great qualifying lap or something that actually has me locked into the field. Two days later, Beam finished 32nd in the Daytona 500. It's like a starting park who doesn't go in with a pit crew. But 30, 32nd that year wasn't that bad because they, they, it's like one of those years they started like, I don't know, the uh, it's like 60-something cars back then yeah wow. you know you do you you do you matt <laughs> you, 30 seconds not very good i don't care how many they start i beat half of them <laughs> only ran eight laps beat half of them <laughs> all right all right well let's go to the white flag keep coming bud white flag, bud. White flag right there white flag white flag Two airings of our tv show this week 5 p.m and 9 p.m eastern time this hey, tuesday can i ask you a question sure how did y'all guys, uh, did you guys watch the Burton? 
watched the beginning of it. It was during my uh, daughter's soccer game, and I'm sitting there watching the Burton episode. Yeah, yeah I we thought we were it was on at a unique time. Yeah, on Friday. How did how did do you think? Oh man, I thought the, you know as as our TV typically does, our TV show typically does. Uh, the producers put in some just awesome photos and imagery. Yeah. It's just it's incredible. So like when you're talking about paint schemes and and the look Jeff Burton had back in the day, you know, oh Mark Traina and Brian Goodwin, they'll find the pictures oh, yeah. of it. So it was good. Did you like it? Did you did. see it? I did not see the show, but uh, I have seen a lot of stuff drummed up on social media. Our show brings things to the surface on social media. So a lot of photos. NASCAR man does a lot of cool digging around and finding some great clips and so forth. Got to see uh, Burton win his first race at Martinsville, driving for that Sam Ard car. He was talking about that white 12. Yeah. And uh, some pictures of him back from back when he's running late models. And uh, pretty interesting. It was interesting. By the way, speaking of things that drummed up, did y'all see Ward Burton's tweet of, of our uh, <laughs> teaser video? Yeah, he said he had a different story. <laughs> yeah. Of course, there's two stories. There always is. But I think Jeff Burton actually, it's not in the teaser video. I think Jeff Burton actually said Ward would not agree with this. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So two airings. We got 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. this Tuesday, October 22nd. That's the Dale Jr. download on NBC Sports Network. Dirty Mo Media is all over social media. Follow at Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, subscribe to the Dirty Mo Media YouTube channel. We're gearing up for some more content that's going to be exclusive to that channel, so you might as well go ahead and subscribe there. Uh, a reminder that if you're not already listening to our other podcast, Door Bumper Clear, you should be doing it. By the way, guys, did you guys catch that little disagreement between Brett and TJ last week over the uh, yellow line rule? Yeah. yeah. That, that was good times. I thought it was actually a good conversation. Um, I, would, I would pick brett in any debate um but the fact is uh i thought it was good so um i was sort of hoping that boyer would make the next round just to keep the you know the sensitivity levels on on high (laughs) for these two guys but um anyway door bumper clears on dirty mo media uh you can check that out check this apple rating and review out this was really good on thursday a reviewer unfortunately i don't know their name but they wrote this the jeff burton interview was an eye-opener for me I am a retired Marine and have struggled to find a purpose since retiring. Though I have heard of Team Rubicon, I have never looked into any detail with them. After hearing the great things they do, I have reached out to them to get involved. This podcast is more than just racing. It's really good for the soul. Thank you, guys. So, awesome stuff there. And then lastly, I just want to say that today there's a beer toast for Josh Berry. His win at Martinsville. We've got a grandfather clock that's being put together as we speak. Looking forward to that, and uh, that's it. No, no better way to end than on a, on the grandfather. Good clock. job, Mike. All right, close the show, boys. Here, hey everybody, it's a great show. Thanks uh, for listening. Appreciate the King for coming uh, and and giving us a little bit of his time today. Awesome conversation. Uh, we we got into some pretty cool history there with him. So I'm thankful. Guy's got a great memory. Still telling some great stories from way way back. Good job, Mike. Good hey, job, man. everybody. That was fun. All right, we'll see y'all next week. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.